Welcome to the Fourth Watch Podcast, a curated conversation with some of the most interesting voices in the media. I'm Steve Krakauer. Today I'm joined by Laura Logan of Fox Nation. This is episode four. This Fourth Watch Podcast is presented by The First TV. Find out more at thefirsttv.com. More on that later. From hypocrisy of the Obama-era press to what she sees in the media of the Trump era to leaving the Acela media for Texas, we start with Laura Logan's work as a foreign correspondent after 9-11. I wanted to uh, start with, uh, with with really the work that brought you into the view, I would say, of American uh, of an American audience in, in the journalism world, which really, I, I, to, is from what I could tell, kind of coincides with, with 9-11. Um, and and the way that that moment really changed, obviously the United States, but certainly the world, and the way people think about foreign policy and and the dangers of the world, frankly. Uh, and what what drew you to diving into that that you know somewhat dangerous uh, world of foreign correspondence right after that that nine eleven attack? Well, it's funny that you mention that because it was such a pivotal moment in my life and in my career. And not for many of the reasons that people think, because you're right, that's when I, you know, people in the U.S. sort of came to know my face and my voice and my work. But I had been uh, working on battlefields and in war zones for years before that. As a young journalist in South Africa, I was in Angola um, during the Civil War there and in Mozambique as well. And of course, in South Africa, um, in the struggle against apartheid, the townships were like a war zone. So um, I had uh, been reporting for, since I was 17 years old, by the time 9-11 happened, I'd been a reporter for more than a decade. Um, And it did change the world for all of us. I was living in London at the time, and I'll never forget seeing those planes um, plow into the World Trade Center and, you know, watching it all unfold. And that was really the moment when uh, I had been following Osama bin Laden for years before that. There was the Kobach Towers bombing. There were uh, the attacks on the embassies in Kenya and Tanzania. So for me, I knew instantly. When I saw those planes hit, I was like, okay, that doesn't happen. This is a terrorist attack. It's Osama bin Laden. For me, it was the culmination of uh, years of work when 9-11 happened. And um, it was almost like I'd been <laughs> back, had been preparing for that moment for a very long time. Yeah, no, no, I, I can imagine. And and then, you know, you get, get onto the, the big stage. The, the story was obviously the, the story in the media for, for years, really. Um, and and for, you know, CBS News, really at the, at the height, I would say, of of what CBS News was, you know, in, in many ways, um, because of a variety of factors with digital media, with the changes in the media landscape, those, you know, 2001 to, you know, 2011, maybe, was, was really the height of, of even those legacy media outlets like CBS. So, so how was it reporting, you know, essentially living uh, in, in, in the Middle East for those early years at CBS? Well, you know, I spent five years living in Iraq um, from really the beginning of that war until uh, 2008, um, which was pretty much when Obama decided to pull out and the whole thing changed dramatically. Um, And before that, of course, I was living in Afghanistan, which is uh, commonly referred to as, you know, the Middle East, but really as Central Asia. And so has a very different dynamic. And I think that the conflating of these things in the American consciousness uh, through the media and through political figures 
is uh, is really in part responsible for in some ways our complete lack of um, understanding and our ability to evaluate what our leaders are telling us when they're trying to you know sell whatever policy or move they want to make right because we're told all oh, these wars in the Middle East will never end of course Afghanistan's not even in the Middle East right so um, then we're told we'll, we'll bring in the strategy that worked in Iraq to Afghanistan Petraeus is doing it it's wonderful it's great it's going to work there well of course it's not because Afghans are nothing like Iraqis. And actually, that's the benefit of being a beat reporter kind of on the ground, living with people, right? Is that you learn that the Afghans have a deep, deep animosity towards Arabs. And they really resented being told by um, Arab members of Al-Qaeda and Chechens and others who came into their country how to worship, um, how to you know, fight what they were supposed to be doing with their land, right? And their holy sites. They hated it. And so in fact, it was that division that the US exploited um, in, uh, in when they went after the Taliban. Right. And there is another misnomer, right? Because people always refer, refer to the war in Afghanistan. And actually, and the invasion, more importantly, they say the invasion. But the Afghans were the ground forces in that war. There were only a few hundred clandestine operators and Green Berets from the US side. Really what the US brought was um, intelligence capabilities through technology and the air war, right? The planes, the air support, the air campaign. So the Afghans are very offended when you call it a US invasion. Whereas here, the words invasion are just used, you know, New York Times, Washington Post, it doesn't matter. Everyone yeah. just refers yeah. to the, you know, the US invasion without the irony to me being that they don't understand you're insulting the Afghans who bled and died taking that ground back from the Taliban, you know, and they don't see it that way. So um, for for me, being part of CBS News at that time was, you know, was one of the, the greatest uh, things that could ever have happened to me. It was hard as hell. I cannot even begin to tell you what it was like to be a girl with big boobs and long hair and feminine, wear perfume and makeup, doesn't matter. You know, I would, I could emerge from a, a dirt uh, compound um, or a tent or, you know, a toilet basically. And, uh, and I, you know, I had my stuff together. Yeah. I'm a girl. That's who I am. I'm a feminine woman. I'm a girl, but I'm, I'm also uh, smart and I know how to do, I know how to tell stories and get to places people um, often struggle to get to. And those, you know, I brought all those attributes to bear with a work ethic that really, I, I realized I had to outwork all the guys. That was just a given. I didn't care about that um, because I wanted to. I wanted to know everything I could possibly know and understand every little nuance that I could absorb into my brain and my body. And, you know, I mean, that's how I am, right? I'm sucking in the smells and the sights and the emotions and the look in people's eyes. Everywhere I go, that's what I do. I'm just right. collecting everything from what's around me. And um, CBS, you know, very often at times made it brutal because I was the little girl that just wanted her face on TV, right? I was the little girl that didn't belong in a war zone. I was mm -hmm. the little girl that just wanted to be famous. And I was none of those things. So what I did is I found the right people within the company who cared about journalism first and foremost and recognized that we all shared this DNA. It wasn't just me. Um, it was, you know, great uh, journalists and producers and bosses that I worked with along the way who said, okay, look at what, this is what matters. And right. we all focused on what was ma what mattered. 
and you know the rest was hard but i just i lived through it uh, and, 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 that, I, and you, you bring up two really important important elements there and i think the first one is you talk about the the, the what it was like at cbs at the time and I, i'm curious a little bit more about that because as you talk about the nuances of the middle east people talk about the middle east and and i, I honestly it feels like we, we haven't gotten much better in the media landscape of of you know, delineating nuance and and delivering that for an audience. No, we've gotten uh, worse. Right, right, right. We've so, gotten much worse. Yeah, I'm curious if there are if there are any specific stories that you have from that time, from those early times, where you were, whether it's 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 at CBS or or through other reporters, where that that lack of nuance, lack of understanding about the stories that they may even be covering, also uh, has really borne out. Well, I think we're seeing it in Afghanistan today, you know, in the complete lack of interest that anyone um, in the American media appears to have based on the coverage. Um, and for example, the New York Times has been waging its own political campaign on Afghanistan. Um, it feels like from early on. Under Bush, the candy, you know, the reporting was um, that nothing is, is being done, nothing has been achieved. Um, and uh, the Bush administration tried to sell it all as Nirvana, and it was obvious that that you know wasn't true. But really, what you did find was a transformation uh, of a country. I mean, when I first went into Afghanistan, the Taliban had control of more than ninety percent of the land. Right? I mean, that isn't an insurgency; that is a government. So we've been fighting an insurgency. From day one, you'll you'll read about it everywhere. You'll see it reported everywhere. But who, who took the time to stop and say, wait a minute, what is an insurgency? And an insurgency is based on an insurgent force seeking to overthrow the government of the day. But the Taliban regard themselves as the government of the day that were unjustly and wrongfully removed from power by the United States. So they may use insurgent tactics, but they don't fight like an insurgency and they don't think like one. They operate like a government in waiting that is taking back its power. And just that nuance alone would have changed so much. But New York Times, for example, you know, uh, didn't want to be in Afghanistan, didn't believe in being there from early on. So everything that was done in Afghanistan was a negative, a waste of time. Under Obama, it became treasure, it was wasted. There's not a single Afghan worth it, worth a thing. There's not a single Afghan leader that's worth dying for. We've, uh, you know, we just got it. We got to get out. And uh, then, of course, uh, Trump comes in and it's just gone. It's just disappeared. And the only kind of narrative that we have is in or out, whereas Who's actually talking about the fact that what did we go there to do? Right. Do you reporters actually remember that? Do you remember the promises that were made? That doesn't mean the promises have to be kept. But if you're not going to keep them, your reporters are almost, they're not just the, you know, they are not just the note takers. They're the memory, right? Because I remember what the Afghans were told. So when the next president comes in and says, we never said that, I know that's a lie. And then the next one comes in and says, that never happened. Well, you know what? It actually did because I was there and I saw it. And that's what I care about, right? The politics of it is not my, it's not my beat. It's not my job to try and sway the politics one way or the other. I don't try to do that. What I try to do, in fact, is to find the reality that rises. It transcends the political conversation because the politics just stops all of us talking and having an honest conversation. If I want to tell you a story about the transformation of women and girls' lives in Afghanistan, I'm not asking you to vote for George, you know, Bush right, right, or right. for Trump or against, you know, 
right? I'm trying to get you to understand that no matter what the politicians say, these are the things that have changed. And yeah. this is what it means. You decide now. And so for in, in Afghanistan today, the question that no one wants to address is what did we go there to do? We went there to defeat Al-Qaeda because when that group was able to organize and grow on a, a relevant scale, it was able to kill thousands of Americans in the worst terrorist attack in the history of this nation. Is Al-Qaeda today defeated? They are not. They are not defeated. They're not on the run. They're not hiding out. They're in a clandestine intelligence organization whose ideology has spread across the globe. And they're using this time to prepare and to regroup and to, and to grow and everything else. And they've spread their fight from literally to Timbuktu and Syria and beyond. And some people will say, well, I don't care about Timbuktu, but well, you might on the next 9-11. Yeah. And how many stories did we do about all the people who saw 9-11 coming? Ask Hank Crumpton, who was head of counterterrorism at the CIA, right? Became State Department's ambassador for uh, counterterrorism. You know, it's, it's history repeating itself, which brings us back to where we are today, why history matters, because you don't want to repeat it if you can help it. Later, we'll talk about how the press covered the Obama administration and is covering Trump now. But first, how did two specific horrific moments shape Logan's life and career? Let me go to to February of 2011 uh, in in Egypt, which, you know, really two separate, you know, horrible incidents of of being captured and sexually assaulted in Egypt. I'm curious about about that. how did that shape your life and career, those moments and that month? It's a very interesting question that you ask, because I guess what everyone, um, you know, what they expect you to say is um, that it was life changing because I almost died. And, you know, there's nothing like being uh, gamma raped and sodomized for more than, uh, you know, for around 40 minutes by a mob of two to 300 men to really alter your perspective and understanding of what it means like to be completely helpless and vulnerable and without power over your life. I mean, uh, that was uh, certainly um, catastrophically different to anything I'd ever experienced before. But, um, But I think people make an assumption that because of that, you're somehow damaged. And what they don't understand is that um, I'm a person who is, um, is able to put things instantly in perspective and context. That, that's just in my DNA. And I understood from the very first moment that this wasn't about me. I know that bad things happen to good people all the time because I, I've lost count of the good people I've met in my life who have suffered unimaginably. And I know I'm a good person because that good is in my heart and it lives in me. And I fight for that every day of my life. I fight for that. So those things, no one can take those from you, right? That's part of knowing who you are as a person. And all these years ago in South Africa, I had listened to the words of a woman who had been brutally raped and and gutted and um, almost beheaded, her throat slit, and she had survived against all the odds. And not only that, but she had um, helped the police find the men who did that to her. And at her trial, she was asked on the stand, how have you been able to be so strong? Because the details of what they did to her were just horrific. And her words were, um, they took so much from me that night. Why would I give them the rest of my life right. as well? Yeah. And that's, you, you know, that came home to me. I almost feel like 
every little uh, piece of someone that I was given along the way because I'm a very giving person and I give 100,000% of myself. Everything that there is to give, you get it, right? When I walk in through your door or sit down with you and walk into your life or your country or whatever it is, whoever you are, you're getting 100% of my heart and my mind. I'm listening with everything and trying to understand whether I agree with you, whether I like you or not, whatever. So um, this is what I feel I was given. These little pieces along the way that weren't just meant for me. They were meant for, you know, the journalists um, that are coming up, you know, behind me or the people that I've, uh, that I talk to and, and interact with. In other words, I didn't have this um, extraordinary life just for my benefit. It was meant to be um, so that I could give some of that so that, you know, journalists today who might, for example, um, come out of college as an activist and not really even understanding the difference between activism and journalism, well, hopefully they're going to listen to something obnoxious or offensive that I said <laughs> one day, you know, something like, I don't know what they teach you in those colleges anymore. You've got such great people and great professors there, but they're churning out, you know, little, little uh, political robots and they're not teaching you how to be a real journalist. This is, you know, think about this or think about that. You know, um, maybe waking uh, people up sometimes to the reality of what journalism has always been and what it's supposed to be when it's great. And um, and helping all the other journalists who are trying their hardest to do that right now, whose voices are drowned out. Right. right? Now, because I, I'm not the only one. Yeah, I, I think I'm that's... just the only outlaw journalist. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly, and and no, it's it's your experience. I I think that is so. Uh, you could really contrast with a lot of of where the media has gone in, particularly in the last three years. I I look at it's not just about reporting what's true and doing so, you know, in an intellectually honest, intellectually consistent way, but it's it's more about. How does this make me feel? You know, journalists saying this is how it makes me feel, essentially. And then also, here's how it should make you, the audience, feel. And that just seems so counterintuitive to what the principles of journalism actually are. It really is. You're you're um, completely correct. And you know what's even more disturbing about it to me? As I hear you and I'm listening to your words, I'm, it's immediately invoking in me the many different documents that I have read that are uh, political uh, propaganda and information warfare documents that are coming out of the left, which push this exact argument. That, for example, um, a paper that was written in 2012 on gun control, it says it tells you exactly what to say and exactly what to think and exactly how to fight this. Don't touch the Second Amendment. That's an argument you cannot win. Mm. Go for the emotional argument, you know, the, the pain, because that's what people remember. That's what will resonate. And the Second Amendment is the fight. You, you, you can't win if you take on the Second Amendment, but you can win if you're talking about how you felt and the terror as the gunman was rampaging through the school and the trauma and heartbreak and pain of um, a parent that's lost their child. And all of that is real. Nobody can counter it, right? Nobody, um, and I'm not saying that somebody should be countering it. I'm just saying as a tool of information warfare, emotion is extraordinarily powerful. It, it's cut through, it's what people remember, it moves us, and it also does away with the need to make any kind of rational, intellectual, or substantial argument about, for example, what it is exactly that led that comment. Sometimes, you know, we just want to say mental illness, but then we want to move on. Oh, it's you know mental illness, but and uh, now we're not going to talk about it. Well, how did that uh, develop in this young man who took all these lives? And why is there such a prevalence of mental illness? Is it connected to narcotics and the, the rise of of 
pediatric pharmaceuticals. I mean, putting kids on um, amphetamines from an early, early age. Is there any correlation? We're not asking those questions. We're not allowed to ask those questions. Because if we do, we are, you know, carrying water for the NRA and the right. And now we're trying to shift the conversation from what really matters, which is that more gun control or, you know, getting rid of guns or whatever the argument happens to be. And these political traps are set for us everywhere. Right. It's the same thing with the environment. If you want to question the science, or why don't you, well, you just want to destroy the planet, you evil person. If you want to question the science on the pandemic and COVID-19, or for example, the efficacy of masks, you're a murderer, a serial killer, a right-wing lunatic. How could you be so selfish and irresponsible and you don't care who you who you hurt, right? I mean, these are uh, political um, information warfare tactics that are um, that the media is, has become a very willing partner and is playing along with it. But they there are people behind them. There are politicians, powerful people, um, political figures in our society and some who are not inside of politics, who are driving these narratives, who insert them into this um, self-perpetuating you know, cycle because now journalists are trained. They're trained to be activists. They're trained uh, in moral outrage. And so they don't need someone standing over their shoulder making them do it time and again because it's now instinctive. And so is self-censorship right. because the price of standing up against those narratives or not even standing up against them, just questioning those narratives, right? Or reporting on something that maybe challenges them, like pointing out that geologists say the Earth's been warming and cooling every 200 years um, so, you know, for, since time began. And temperature records, you know, are not more than much more than a century old and very, very unreliable. But rocks can tell you down to the tiny last point something of a millimeter exactly what was happening on the planet. So geologists are actually more reliable than any temperature record. And they don't agree with anything you're saying. But if you can't have that conversation because then you're, you know, literally you are Satan, right? Reincarnated, coming to, to murder everyone in their beds. And that kind of thing is is not only is it ridiculous it is also what it's obscuring is that we're not asking who's behind it who's organizing it who's writing it really interesting the color revolution all of these organizations that are telling you the obama alumni whether it's a revolution in climate or it's a revolution in you know uh, prison reform or for the lgbtq community or whatever the model for the resistance is the same and it requires information dominance from the media in order to succeed because it's based on a lie. What you may not know about Benghazi based on how the press covered it at the time, that's next. But first, the Fourth Watch podcast is presented by The First TV. The First is a new network for free speech and big ideas featuring Bill O'Reilly, Dana Lash, Buck Sexton and more. It's a forum for new thought, new approaches and an enlightening voice for a new America that embraces the founding principles and ideals that formed the greatest country on the planet. The first is free, no subscriptions, no credit cards, no trials, no censorship. You can watch The First TV on Pluto TV, Distro TV, Apple TV, The First TV app, and more. Go to thefirsttv.com. That's thefirsttv.com to learn more. Now, back to Laura Logan. I wanted to ask you, though, about something going back to 2013, which was uh, the reporting on Benghazi uh, where uh, you admitted a mistake was made. And I, I, I was... 
you know, it was sort of getting refreshed on that story uh, over the last couple of days as I was preparing for this interview. And, and really, two things struck me about that. First of all, there's been this sense of trying to make it seem like not only was Benghazi not a, um, you know, a scandal in any way, but that the Obama administration was, you know, essentially scandal free. The, the you know, the tan suit was the only thing that was a controversial about it. When really, you know, the, the details of Benghazi are actually sort of, you know, somewhat scandalous if you if you you know look at it. That was the first thing. I wanted to start there. You know, that specific um, you know, story, I I I do wonder if there's been a, a sense of trying to memory hole this by the media that edit anything related to Benghazi was just, oh, just a conspiracy theory from the right. Well, you make a um you make a very uh, significant point, actually, because I was kind of the uh, model of, oh, my goodness, look what happens to you if you touch this. It's yeah. kryptonite. Just keep moving, people. And it's a little bit like that. Cheryl Atkinson was like that with Fast and Furious, right? Because we don't talk about that um, anymore either. We don't talk about the fact that the Justice Department was running guns into Mexico, guns that ended up in the hands of the cartel that were sent to the cartels that killed innocent Mexican civilians, that killed American law enforcement officers. We just, it's fantastic that we have this um, uh, narrative that the Obama administration was uh, scandal-free when you look at um, Gunwalker, right, Fast and Furious, and you look at the IRS. I mean, Lois Lerner and the IRS, they have to be, they're like superhuman because they got away with um, telling the world that their government servers just lost all this information right. and everyone was okay with that. And you are not wrong. I mean, the, the thing with Benghazi that I learned so much from was we didn't actually um, go hard after anyone politically with that story. We really concentrated on the, the people um, who were on the ground. And um, it's ironic that they picked on the least important person in our story and they took details of his narrative that were never ever disproven but they raised doubt about them. And that was used to bury the entire thing, right? And when you were researching it, did you find it anywhere? Could you watch it? Right, yeah, no, not, not much, no. Uh, oh, you couldn't, you couldn't find the story. Yeah. Why don't they want you to see the story itself? Right. Because the story itself was, was probably one of the most powerful pieces of reporting on Benghazi because um, it exposed, for example, it reported for the first time that there were two Delta operators who had gone down from Tripoli to Benghazi on their own steam. They were never uh, activated by their command. And they went in, they brought Christine's body back. They rescued the guys at the annex. They prevented what I was told, um, you know, quietly by uh, someone uh, in Delta, that they prevented the worst hostage crisis in uh, potentially in the history of this country. They did a lot. We were the only ones who reported that. Sufyan Ben Kumu, the Al-Qaeda leader, was really the mastermind of the attack. The New York Times was blaming this ridiculous stooge Abu Qatala, you know, and saying it was all him. And he was the first. They made a big show out of arresting him and making Abu Qatala the face. And a year after our report, the Obama administration sanctioned and admitted that Sufyan Ben Kumu was really responsible. We reported that. Nobody right. had reported that at that time. You know, and there's a whole bunch of other examples like that. Well, but the most well, powerful thing we did was show that. They never intended to save anyone. Well, that's, Ten yeah, minutes that's... into the first attack, 
that decision was made and it never changed. And that, and that honestly, I mean, look, I was at CNN at this time, right? And I, I don't, we could probably do 40 minutes on Benghazi, but what's, it was interesting to me is that Arwa Damon, uh, who was on the ground there as well, ended up, you know, walking into an unsecured embassy after the fact, found Christopher Stevens' diary, uh, was able to see that, that, you know, he was, had been asking for extra uh, security and, and was not receiving that. Such a a huge story that then was, I, I mean, I just remember the day that the reporters in the White House briefing did not mention this. It's like, we've got a huge story here. Why is no one asking about this? And I think we know why. But it, it was so telling and that that where the Benghazi sort of story has now been been relegated in people's minds in the press and, and in the public. Yes, and also Libya, right? We don't talk about the fact that Libya is a failed state. We don't talk about the fact that the whole NATO campaign and the Obama administration, Tom Donald and Hillary Clinton answer to fighting terrorism um, from the skies and through your NATO allies was a disaster and still is a disaster today. The government of Libya is sitting on a ship floating off the coast and Islamic uh, terrorists and Islamic radicals control and run Libya as a base of operations and for, you know, to enrich their fight globally. And not only that, but just a short time after, I mean, we reported in our piece that most of Libya was a no-go zone for American diplomats. And right afterwards, they uh, t- the embassy in Tripoli fell. The U.S. embassy was taken, and we haven't gone back. Right. But no one will even, not just will they not report on Benghazi, no one's even looking at really what happened in Libya. We've just given you know a pass to every political entity involved in that. And it's not just the Obama administration. It's all of those bureaucrats in the State Department and other um, agencies of government who survive all these successive administrations and still push for these same failed policies and still push these cover-ups. And that is very real. That's just a fact. And let me tell you, it's as hard as it is for me as a journalist, having you know rubbed up against this, you try being a diplomat who's been screaming from the rooftops trying to get people to pay attention to him. When his own side and his own, you know, his own people have now turned on him, right? right? And he doesn't even want to accept that because in his heart, he's still, you know, that's still where his loyalties lie. I mean, this is um, this is a situation that has replicated itself and across many uh, very significant stories, and and um, and that there's a price for that, and it's a very significant one. And I just want to say, Arwa Damon is a fantastic reporter and um, someone that I respect very, very much. And what she found there actually was part of the inspiration for us going back to the compound for our story and still finding even more, you know, all that time later, more than a year later, a page from Christopher Stevens's schedule that day, right? Which we were, you know, falsely accused by McClatchy and a terrible reporter, Nancy Youssef, um, who did an awful job from a distance, pushing propaganda, carrying water for, um, for the left at the time, saying that uh, the compound had been renovated and we faked that piece from his schedule. Nonsense. There were three compounds and only one building had been renovated and it wasn't Chris Stevens's one. And um, and we did find that in the trash. But you don't even get to defend yourself in that kind of situation. You've got all these reporters who are just reporting complete trash and lies, who have done zero reporting, accusing you of being a sloppy reporter. And CBS not reporting or telling anybody or including in their review that they had uh, um, d- written out an NDA and we had signed it with mm. the publishing company that we wouldn't reveal the specific details of that one guy's story that night before we went to air. 
And that NDA as a legal document was something that we respected. So we worked around that. And then what did they do? They found two things he did that night that were covered by that NDA. And they said, oh, you didn't go to the FBI about this. You didn't. You were sloppy. You didn't right, do your right. job. And all these reporters climbed on. And not one of them had even watched the piece. I could tell because everything they wrote about it was a lie. Yeah. And even that, though, like, OK, I want to fast forward a little bit because even that, you know, OK, maybe there was a, there was a mistake made. OK, we admit the mistake. There's there's so this sense now where bring like let's bring it to, to 2017, 2018, 2019, the Russia collusion story, uh, the Mueller report, the things that were coming out from places like McClatchy or BuzzFeed or CNN that that came out not just to be small mistakes or maybe even not mistakes, maybe you know, un, unclear if it was true. I mean, downright false information and and no toxicity to that. Colossal lies and nonsense, yes. And, you know, for example, the New York Times, front page headlines, February 17th, right? That intelligence officials have uh, all the evidence, uh, you know, confirmed evidence of Russian collusion between the Trump campaign. I mean, that's, that is one of literally, at this point, hundreds of thousands of uh, reports planted by political figures who today are still on the air and being quoted in those same public. This one contractor from my Benghazi story, who only two things he said were questioned, right? Only two. Imagine if I'd gone back and done more stories with him. Right. I would have been the laughing stock of the universe. But you're still going to put Adam Schiff on air when you know he lied and lied and lied and lied. John Brennan. And I just, I love as well, they do this other thing today. When something happens with the administration, they go straight to John Brennan for comment. As if he's an, a disinterested third-party expert. I mean, with extraordinary knowledge because of his experience. Are you kidding me? Uh, ben Rhodes, too, I, I have to say. I mean. Oh, yes. And Ben Rhodes being one of the absolute worst of all, who even came out and told, uh, what was it, New York Times Magazine, all about how stupid reporters were and how they had fed a false narrative right. on Iran to, to weasel this um, corrupt Iran deal through and lied and lied and lied. And because they have information dominance, they just get away with it because there's no accountability. Most of the media just moves on. It's not a big story if they say it's not a big story because they control so much of the information space. And anyone that's new that's trying to pop up, right, because people will say, oh, but look, the right has Rush Limbaugh. They have Coke Radio and Breitbart and Drudge. Well, don't even know about Drudge anymore because obviously <laughs> it's not the same place. Right. And um, and by the way, all those organizations are cast out of the party of legitimacy, right? The party of legitimacy is what I call, it's like the Hollywood Super Bowl Oscars for the whole of our society. And if you're you know, at the New York Times, you're invited. If you're in Hollywood, you're invited. If you're a Nobel laureate, you're invited. If you're a scientist that agrees with our science, you're invited. But, you know, and the list goes on and on and on, right? The ACLU, they have a seat of honor, the Anti-Defamation League. Their, their position is guaranteed. This is the big party and everyone who's invited here, this is the center of our life and existence. You're not gonna see an Oscar being given to a conservative film. You're not gonna see it being given to a Christian film, right? You're not gonna see the Nobel Prize awarded to a scientist who's challenging the political narrative on climate. You're not gonna see any of that happen. So this is the only party in town that actually matters. What brought Lara Logan to Fox Nation and Fox News? That's coming up. 
But first, it's time for another edition of Blocked, Ridiculous Stories of Media Twitter. This is where, as a way to get to know me better, I tell you the story of someone who's blocked me on Twitter. This time it's Philippe Rains, the longtime Clinton, first Bill, then Hillary operative Philippe Rains. He's a regular presence on cable news, a go-to source for a lot of journalists. He can always give a great quote, but it's also a bit kind of prickly. I enjoyed following him on Twitter, as he often got in fights with people and came across as pretty ridiculous. But then Amy Chozik's Clinton campaign book revealed an exceptionally gross and sexist comment Reigns made to her, and I tweeted about it. I tweeted, this is quite the strange and awful paragraph from Amy Chozik's book regarding Philippe Reigns and other Hillary Clinton dudes. And I said, what WTF is Reigns getting at here, and is that okay, Hillary fans? The quote, which was Reigns, said, I didn't know I had to say it was off the record when I was inside you. Chozik described that as grossly gynecological. After that, I was blocked for good. Blocked on April 20th, 2018. Status still blocked. And now, back to Lara Logan. You then moved to Fox. Lara Logan has no agenda, which has a which is a fantastic name, by the way, um, at, at Fox Nation. What drew you to Fox? I, I think we may have the answer from what we just, just talked about. Um, but, uh, but how has the experience been? You know, it's funny that you say what drew you to Fox because, um, I, you know, I worked through a production company and the um, show was really pitched um, to Fox Nation by the production company, came out of a discussion they had after I did the podcast with Mike Ridland, fantastic podcast, by the way, and a, a remarkable guy who um, I have so much respect for, who's now a friend. And Mike Ridland's podcast, when you know he asked me a question I've been asked 400,000 million times in my life, which is about media, you know, liberal bias in the media. And I uh, made it honestly, somewhat offhand remark to me, a very unremarkable one, that um, well, most journalists are on the left. And that was only, you know, part of my explanation. What I was trying to, to get to was that, that ideological ground where we all kind of agree with each other about everything um, is a space that can be exploited. Specialists and political operatives who know how to use that in a bias um, and ideological sympathy and leverage it for their benefit. I, I wasn't saying that because you're you're liberal, you can't do real reporting or that you can't be objective. I, and we're just stating as a fact that that is those are the conditions that have been so successfully um, exploited. And it caused a firestorm, which was kind of crazy to me. But I now understand, having gone back and studied it and looked at it more, that really what you have is, is once the side that has information dominance doesn't want a level playing field they want it to be the crazy conspiracy theorists on the outs um, that are you know that are against us the noble warriors for truth who are in the center and if they admit that they have a liberal bias or that they we all see the world the same way then they're giving up that ground where they can say hey look we're objective we're the truth tellers and these guys are not right. and that's become even more important recently because separation of those two worlds is critical if you don't ever go you know watch fox or read you know creative destruction media or you know breitbart or whatever it happens to be right if you're not watching the blaze and and so on you you literally wouldn't even know the extent to which brennan and clapper and all of them lied because it's barely been reported and when it has been it's been minimized so if you think about it separating those two worlds and dividing them just like dividing the nation and dividing the races and everything has been a very important very powerful tool and so the what i learned um working at you know um 
with this company and, and being part of Fox Nation and Fox News is that reporters there live under a level of scrutiny that isn't applied to the other side. And they're harassed and criticized and um, you know bombarded every single day. Right. And uh, that doesn't happen in the other space. And so it was really kind of interesting for me because I never thought about that very much. Like if you're a young reporter on the ground today or you're Andy No, a you know, phenomenal journalist who's um, really made Antifa his beat and the far left radicals, you know, violent radicals, you're never coming, you're never going to be invited to the party. You're never going to get an Emmy. You're never going to know what it is to be part of the journalism family. Columbia Journal and Columbia Journalism Review and all these institutions that are legacy institutions that are sort of the godfathers of our profession. And we as the great warriors of truth and, you know, uh, holders of uh, holders of the First Amendment, et cetera, they don't care about you. They don't care if you get, I mean, beaten up by Antifa and um, that you have to hide your identity just to go out and report um, accurately because they don't want cameras on them. They want you to focus on the police and they don't want cameras that they don't control. They don't believe in the First Amendment. They don't believe in freedom and any of these principles, right? And so rushing to protect institution of journalism and young journalists today where where are they when uh, you know they're spray painting murder andy no across huge um you know wooden uh, boards in downtown portland where are they when andy no is on his way to hospital with a brain hemorrhage because he's been beaten where are they when uh, taylor the young journalist is um you know his face is out here right now who's now 20 years old you know and in shock and right. alone in portland um under threat of death Right. They said next time it's going to be worse. This is a warning. Where are all the others? Right. And so um, this is for me. What I realized is when you're not invited to the party, it's a cold, hard world out there. <laughs> and I think it was really important for me to learn that because um, as hard as my struggle had been to be, you know, after being uh, really kind of uh, often, you know, bullied in the vicious world of television news, um, it was it's a it's a different experience when you're outside and you're not invited, and uh, and I really appreciate that. I have new respect for what um, you know, really for what uh, so many of these organizations do. And I have new respect for so many of the people at Fox. I didn't take them seriously yeah. for I mean forever. I, I just what a right wing kind of you know place, and yeah. I know that's not what they are. I know that's not what they are now, um, and they have done extraordinary work over the years. I'm not just saying that to blow smoke, you know, because because my show is is there. Um, but they really have. I mean, it's a it is a sleek machine, and they know what they're doing. I, I sometimes when I'm a guest on those shows, I look at those anchors um, with a little bit of awe because that's a tough thing to do night after night and be constantly, savagely, systematically targeted every day of your life, like Tucker Carlson or Sean. We're going to end with the Trump era and Logan's move to Texas and the Fourth Watch lightning round, six questions, 60 seconds. But first, a new segment from the Fourth Watch newsletter called simply, Why? Why, in this case, are there pundits on cable news? Why do we have pundits? It's an important question because if people were ranking what's best about cable news, punditry would likely come in at the end of the list. It's important to distinguish two things. First, what is a pundit? Someone whose expertise is speculative, typically about politics. They aren't a reporter. They're not on a beat. They're not a subject matter expert even. They're just skilled at talking about an issue of which they are 
tangentially involved. The second important factor is why would anyone want to be a pundit? People are pundits because of ego. Let's say you're someone who has a job that's not particularly exciting. One day, a TV network says they will have a blacktown car pick you up from your house, drive you to a large Manhattan office building that houses a fancy studio. When you arrive, you're ushered into a makeup chair, which a makeup artist and a hairstylist dote over you, making you, quote, camera ready. You go and talk about a subject you know a little bit about for approximately five minutes. When you're done, many friends and family have texted you to tell you how great you did. Your Twitter following grows more in an hour than it has in months. You're brought back into your little limo and driven home. If you're lucky, you're asked to repeat that again. This is the life of a pundit. It's an alluring, sure, in a vain and self-important sort of way. But why are pundits on cable news? The main reason is time. Cable news requires filling massive amounts of time, and pundits are cheaper and mostly free and easier to manage than a reporter or a reported piece of journalism. Pundits are like a wind-up toy. You wind them up and then watch them go. They can eat time. They also largely will say what they are expected to say, and so there's little opportunity for mistakes or missteps. Going forward, why? We'll take a look at how we can find a better solution. What's better than punditry? You can maybe talk to regular people around the country on issues that are important in their communities. These are not professional voices, but they have potentially more expertise than pundits. Having the people on themselves talking about similar topics, but in a way that is closer to the communities that they're in, that's a better solution than incessant punditry. Now, back to Lara Logan. Seven years ago, I left New York City. I uh, was in you know, the media world in New York, and, and kind of that's, that's all uh, in the bubble over there, and came to Dallas, uh, Texas, and, and really, you know, for me, gained a level of perspective. And I, I do wonder, you know, you're now a, a Texan as well, been here for a few years. Uh, what, what has that brought to, to your work? What has that brought kind of perspective um, to the world? The, the coasts define this nation um, internationally and visually and in terms of, you know, media being the East Coast, media and politics and Hollywood and the West Coast being the other arm of this. But when you actually see these policies being implemented on every single level of government in this country, then you start to understand, wow, actually, um, even that as a conspiracy theory was a tool way back then to make sure we didn't ever talk about so, I mean, I've been living on the ground in uh, different places, trying to understand the people and where I am all my life. That's what I do. Right. And it's no different here in the U.S. I just never thought I would see the day when young reporters are having to hide and being and living basically in a, in a reign of terror with death threats. And that the political establishment and the people of this nation that really have built it and made it uh, what it is uh, are just turning a blind eye, pretending it's not happening, and even going as far as denying that it's even real, right. which is a level of insanity to me that, um, that is, so, uh, is so prescient about where we're going if people don't open their eyes. And where we live in Texas and in other parts of flyover country, people are so tired of the narratives being pushed at them and shoved down their throats that they're not paying attention. And that too has a price. Everything has a price. No. Uh, well, on that happy note, let me uh, let me go to the last uh, thing. Six questions, 60 seconds, the Fourth Watch podcast lightning round. Uh, first, where were you born? I was born in Durban in South Africa at Mother's Hospital. Got it. You're a Fox Nation host at Fox News. What is one benefit and one cost of that role? Well, I love the fact that we can have as much, you know, a lot of time to tell stories because it's subscription-based. But then I also, um, it's a shame that uh, people have to subscribe because um, a lot of people don't get to see it. Who, who, and there's a lot of work. 
you know? Right. No, for sure. Who, who's someone who's been a mentor for you? Um, well, you know, I always think of uh, Nelson Mandela is the uber mentor of all mentors, right? Way up above there. Um, but uh, the, the great journalists that came before me, like Jeremy Bowen at the BBC, um, you know, Mike Wallace was the best. He used to say, hey, kid, when are you going to cut that hair? <laughs> um, Ed Bradley was, um, he was just uh, such a classic consummate gentleman and great professional when I was a young radio reporter took note of me and you know and reached out a hand I mean I just love uh I love those guys Ed and Mike uh were two of my very 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 favorites that's great uh who is one person you really like professionally or personally that may surprise people uh that may surprise people well um personally or professionally you know what uh, I don't think it may not surprise everyone, but I really like Mike Flynn. He's an old friend, and I've known him uh, for you know years. And what I what always impressed me about Mike Flynn is that he is a man who uh, cannot be bought, and um, really lives by what he says. He's got no filter. He's not political, as we've seen the cost of that. <laughs> and wherever I went in Iraq and Afghanistan, the Afghan leaders and uh, soldiers and generals and you know, the Iraqis, they, somebody would always find me and say, you from America, do you know Mike Flynn? <laughs> you know, and they all, that was the general. He was the guy they all wanted back. They hated it when he when he left um, because they felt that he truly respected people and treated them with respect. And that's the, the Mike I know. So it, it really bothers me that he's depicted the way he is um, in, the, in the media by journalists who have zero understanding of even what the role of the head of the DIA is because they write nonsense about him that if they understood the job, they would know that what they're writing is a complete and utter lie, right. just this information being fed to them by his enemies. Who is one person in the media you think is really interesting or talented that isn't getting enough attention? Well, um, <clears throat> I like um, Drew Hernandez and um, Elijah Schaefer and uh, Kaylin um, Delmeida. Jorge Ventura, Julio Rosas, um, uh, Brendan with the unpronounceable German uh, last name, and um, Shelby, um, Shelby Telcott. These are the young reporters yeah. who are on the front line of the fight against, uh, well, the you know the war in America's streets right now uh, with Antifa. And Andy you know, of course, who is sort of you know he in many ways led the way for a lot of these young uh, reporters. I just um, I think that they are um, completely and utterly disregarded and ignored by the media establishment as a whole, and um, that I know that the level of violence and threats and death threats against them today is uh, is is extraordinary, and it's terrifying for them. They've got young wives and young families at home, some of them, and they've got no resources, they've got no backing, they have very little money, they share rooms they, with each other, you know, and, um, and they're the unsung heroes of journalism today. Yeah, and they're all great follows on Twitter also. Uh, last one, one year from today, what is one prediction for the media? Ooh, wake up or you're in real trouble. <laughs> got it. Uh, Laura Logan, thank you so much for doing this. Thanks so much for, for the time today. Thank you for, I mean, it's really nice talking to you and thank you for doing this. Because your experience of both worlds is, is really important, too. Thanks to Laura Logan of Fox Nation. Great talking with her. What is Fourth Watch, by the way? It's a newsletter uh, as well as a podcast. You can go to fourthwatch.media to subscribe to the newsletter. It's free. comes out three times a week. And you'll uh, help me build a better media together. 
If you like the music in this show, as I do, check out the artist who created it, Super Duper. That's Super Duper Music on Instagram. The song is Far From Falling. Download it wherever you get your music. And uh, if you like this podcast, you can download and subscribe and follow and like at uh, Apple or Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts. This podcast is produced at Full Circle Studios in Addison, Texas. Join us next time. Stay safe. Talk to you then.